All right, all right. Settle down, settle down. Man, it is good to be here. Man, Nathan said, try to scare me. I'm from Chicago. I don't get scared, all right? Hey, it is, it is honestly, it's a privilege and a privilege. I mean, I just, I absolutely love uh, being here. This is my second church home uh, when, I'm, when I'm away from my church. I just love being up here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jordan, a pastor out in Chicago. My brother attends here, and now, whenever I am in the beautiful state of Wisconsin, I also attend here as well. So I just, I'm honored, privileged to be here today. Hey, do you, I want to start with some just uplifting quotes. That would work. Maybe, I just feel like we need to be encouraged this morning. Anyone agree? Yeah? All right. So let's just, well, don't clap yet. Um, here's the first one. It's by Richard Dawkins. Faith is belief without evidence and reason. Coincidentally, that's also the definition of delusion. You want to clap now, you pagans? All right. <laughs> Sam Harris. While believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stu stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. Ouch, that one hurt a little. Uh, Isaac Asimov. Emotionally, I'm an atheist. I don't have the evidence to prove that God doesn't exist, but I so strongly suspect he doesn't that I don't want to waste my time. All right, sideburns. You see those? Go back to go back a slide. Look at those sideburns. This is awesome. All right, terrible quote. Good sideburns. Next one. Um, exceptional. And I actually, I agree with this one. Exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. Christopher Hitchens. When I was a kid, I got this new orange electric mongoose scooter. This thing was the scooter from hell, all right? I mean, it was fun, but man, this thing was dangerous. Uh, but I remember JJ, my buddy, he would come over after school, and he would ride. He'd get on the little mongoose scooter. I would, would tie a rope, and I would get on my skateboard, and I would just kind of, he would kind of zip me through the little neighborhood. It was a blast. It was so much fun. But I remember my mom, being a mom, calls me in one day. She says, Jordan, get over here. Absolutely not. I said, what? She, why, mom? You, you always take the fun out of everything. Mom's, ah, right? I was like, what do you want? And she's like, Jordan, you're going to get hurt. I said, no. I, and I remember being so mad. I said, mom, where's the evidence? Like, where's the evidence that I'm going to get hurt? Here's the thing about me, and maybe this is you as well. I've always been about the evidence. Anyone else here? Like, I can't just, I can't just accept something because of an emotional experience. I got to have some facts. Anyone else? Like, I got to have some proof. Parents, when you say to your kids, or when my mom would say, because I said so, okay, that's not evidence. That's just lazy parenting. Like, I, I need some proof. So one afternoon, JJ, he, he got on the scooter, and again, I'm behind him on the skateboard. We're zipping through, and all of a sudden, a car pulls out of the driveway a little too fast. JJ gets spooked. He turns the handles. He, I, we both fly off. I luckily fall into the grass. JJ falls into the street with his arm snapped in half. I walked over to JJ, and I said, there's the evidence. That's what I needed. Mom, was that so hard, right? I've always been like that. I've always been about the evidence. I need the evidence. In fact, the same craving for evidence, it's what brought me when I was in fifth grade. I remember having this like emotional breakdown in fifth grade. I, I ran into my dad's room. I'm crying. I'm a mess. And I'm like, dad. He's like, oh my word, what's wrong? I said, how do we know that we're right? 
How do we know that we're reasonable? What are you talking about? Like, out of all of the religions of the world, everyone thinks they're right. How do we know that we're right? Like, aren't we just so gullible that we just got to believe this is? And, and Dan, how do we even know that God exists? I mean, you, you told me about Santa Claus around the same time you told me about God, right? And you weren't very upfront about that one. So who's to say? Like, how do we know that God exists? That sent me uh, on a journey that we're going to go on today. In fact, this, this right here, this is more than a sermon for me. This is really life-shaping. I would say this is my faith-shaping journey of how I decided really to cement this belief and this faith in God in my heart. And I hope for some of you, this may do the same thing. So if you have a Bible, turn to with me to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. I believe there's Bibles there as well for you. Uh, we're gonna be starting in verse 19. As you're turning there, Talk to you guys. I want to talk to you guys about a guy named Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew. He was a famous atheist philosopher for almost 60 years. Brilliant guy. He wrote almost 30 different books on atheism, and he would regularly debate other Christian philosophers. Uh, there's actually my friend back in the day. He actually went to a debate where Anthony Flew was debating the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, if you've heard of him. Again, Anthony Flew, like he's a, he's a, he's a sharp guy. He knows his stuff. But Anthony, he lived by a life principle that, honestly, I think a lot of us would do really well to live by this principle as well. This was his life principle. He said, I am going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. So if it, if it leads me to, to, to look at things a little bit different, well, so be it. If it leads me to change some of my views, so be it. I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Well, Anthony, he continued to argue against Christianity, held fast to this principle. And as years went by and as science became more and more clear, more and more evidence started to surface. And Anthony, a lifelong atheist at the age of 84, this is three years before he died, he wrote his last book. You want to know the title? It was, There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changes mind. Because I know that there are skeptics in this room. I want to say you're in good company. It's not wrong to be skeptic. It's not wrong to want to, to have some tangible evidence to believe in something. Yeah, that's, that's actually called having wisdom. That's called being smart. But I would encourage you, okay? Go on the journey, Christian or not. Like, go, go on the journey. Follow the evidence. Don't be afraid to, to ask those questions. We live in, in a world that's just like, an, it's a marketplace of ideas. It's a marketplace. How do you know what you believe? Well, man, go ask yourself, is my idea of life, my worldview, is it the best faith position based on logic, based on science, history, philosophy, literary criticism? Is my faith position the best faith position? And then I'd encourage you, follow the evidence. I want to start today by looking at Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's basic claim about the existence of God. And this is where we're going to spend our time. Verse 19, look down at your Bible. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, 
They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. If you were to go onto a crime scene, let's just say it was like a murder, okay, and you were on the forensics team and you got the little, you know, duster and you're dusting around, what's the first thing you start dusting for? For fingerprints. Why? Because you know if you could just find one fingerprint, that's going to provide hard evidence in court. Paul is saying in this text, God's fingerprints, they're all over the freaking world. Like, they're obvious. They're all over. You can see them. Like, you guys ever hear people who are like, you know what? If God's real, why doesn't he just, like, show himself to us, right? Like, why doesn't he just go on the news and just, like, show himself? I'm God. Okay, you know what I always say? I say, what are you talking about? If God is playing hide and seek, he's terrible at it. Like, he's really bad. He's like my three-year-old who just covers his eyes and thinks that no one can see him. That's, that's, God, he's made himself obvious to every single person. You know what's really strange about religion and church, God, like all this? You know what's really strange? I don't know if you ever thought about it, but why, why in the world do we even have to believe? Like, why in the world do we even have to have faith? Shouldn't we just know like we, we don't do that with really any, anything else. Like my wife, I don't have to just believe that we're married. Right? Like I, I know because we walked down the aisle and when I said I do, I knew that I just made her the luckiest woman in the world. Like I knew, I wasn't like, oh man. Or my kids, oh man, if I could just have enough faith to believe that they're my kids. no. I slept with my wife, big surprise. Nine months later, we had this little monster running around. And he would talk and, and unfortunately act like me. And right, like it was just, it was obvious. I didn't have to guess. And so think about this. Why is something so extraordinary like faith, like the belief in God? Why do you have to talk yourself into it? Like, shouldn't you just know? And Paul's answer is yes. You should just know. It's, it, it's, it's common understanding. You should just be able to look at the observable universe and be like, okay, there's a God. His fingerprints are everywhere. So, someone actually after the service, I've done, done this sermon before, and someone after said, wow, Jordan, I didn't know you are so smart. Which one, that was a little offensive. And, and, and two, I was like, are you... If you think I'm smart, you just missed the whole point of the sermon. The whole point of this is that it's obvious. It's common sense arguments that you consciously or subconsciously already know. And so all we're going to do is I'm just going to group these. Actually, philosophers have helped group these into really helpful, helpful areas. And then what they did is they unhelpfully gave them complicated names. And so don't let these names fool you into thinking that they're really big and sophisticated. They're really not. They're common sense arguments for the existence of God. All right, if you have notes, I'd encourage you, take this out. It's fascinating stuff. We'll see number one. Number one is the domino fingerprint. You guys ever play with dominoes as a kid, right, where you'd set them up one after another after another, and then you'd accidentally knock one over, and what would happen? It would knock the next one open, and then it would knock the next one over, and the next one would carry on, right? It's cause and effect. Something caused something to happen. Nothing causes nothing to happen. So let's do, let's do a little math here together, okay? I know this is Wisconsin, but I think you can do it, okay? Ooh, 
Bert, I was, oh man, you're not inviting me back now. That was good. All right, all right. Prove me wrong here, okay? Help me out here. Zero plus zero is? Zero. Okay, good job. You can do it. All right. Zero minus zero is? Zero. Good. Zero times zero? Good. Last one. All together now. Nothing times nothing equals the Andromeda Galaxy. The Grand Canyon. The Great Barrier Reef. The Animal Kingdom. Human DNA. How, how does nothing produce all of that? Maybe you're thinking, well, Jordan, yeah, that's why I believe in the Big Bang Theory, which, listen, if you do, that's fine. I know a lot of Christians uh, who, who believe in that theory, but listen, even if you do, if you believe that every single speck of energy was jammed into a single point and then exploded with such unimaginable force that it created this complex and sophisticated universe that we live in, what produced that? Right, like what produced, where, where did that energy or that matter come from? This is the big debate. Either matter is eternal or there's a divine being that is eternal. Now, do you guys remember physics class? I, don't worry, I don't either. Uh, studying, I, I ran into the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that all energy in the universe, it's decreasing. That's why when you make coffee, it doesn't actually stay hot. Eventually, if you made coffee this morning, it cools down because all of the energy is decreasing. Think of it like this. Think of it like our universe is running on batteries. Right? The whole universe, eventually, batteries what? They run out. So if the universe was actually eternal, the universe would have already ran out by now. The batteries would have already ran out. The universe cannot be eternal because it was made. So what's eternal? Something had to make all of this. Every physical thing is finite. It means it has to be created. Someone or something had to boop, push over that domino. If only there was someone who, who wasn't finite. If only there was someone who wasn't physical. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. And I love this. Every single one of you, every single thing in the universe, it grows weak and weary. But our God never grows weak, and he never grows weary. That's our God. Our God is not just physical matter that was made. He is spirit. He's infinite. He's powerful. He's eternal. He's above it all. Like, this is, we know this. You know this. This is common sense. That's why generations from as far as we can look, they, they, they used to look up to the heavens and they knew this. They just believed that there was a divine being who created all of this because there's too much order and there's too much complexity. It leads us to our next fingerprint, which is my favorite, and I think it's the most convincing. This is the teleological argument, also known as the iPhone fingerprint. Now, Imagine for a second that the iPhone has never been created. You've never seen one of these things, you've never heard about one of these, these things in your life, never even heard of a cell phone. And let's just say you're walking to church this morning and you see in the grass this little alien-looking device. And so you pick it up and boop, 
it turns on. You're like, what in the world? It lights up. And you're kind of playing with it. You're swiping and the boxes start coming out. You're like, what is this thing? And so you, in your curiosity, you chuck it on the ground to see what's inside of it. And all of a sudden you open it up and you're like, what? There's like little circuits and wires. I actually don't know what's in one of these, but I'm sure it's crazy, right? And intricate and sophisticated. I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think that if you've never seen one of these in your life, you'd say, whew, I wonder what exploded and made this. Maybe someone was walking and they had a bunch of like metal and glass in their pocket and it just boop, fell off the ground and it created the iPhone. No, you would say, wow, this is so intricate. It's so complex. Someone, something had to create and design this. Help me out here. What's more intricate? The iPhone or the human eye? What's more intricate? The iPhone or, or the, the fact that we're traveling 67,000 miles an hour around the sun, and there's not even a breeze outside. Like, what's more believable? There is this strange, anti-random design to the universe, and it screams a creator had to be involved. So let's, let's metaphorically, we're going to kind of grab our, our telescopes out here, and we're going we're gonna to look at this. The Earth position in the solar system, it's what scientists, they call it that it's in the Goldilocks zone. Have you ever heard of this? It's not too hot and it's not too cold. It's just right. See, if the Earth were 15% farther away from the sun, we would be in a permanent ice age and eventually we would all die. If the Earth, let's just say 5% closer to the sun, temperatures would rise to nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit, where again, we would all die. Ecologists say that if the level of oxygen in the air dropped by 6%, we would all suffocate. And if it rose by just 4%, just a little bit, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball, where again, we would all burn and die. Last one. If Jupiter were not the size it is, you know this? If Jupiter, if that planet was not in the size it is, it would not, it would, and it was not in the place that it was in, there would be around 10,000 times the number of asteroids hitting Earth than what happens right now. And you'd guessed it, we'd all die. There's a lot of death involved, isn't there? Now, th think about this. There, there are 22 constants. Think Think dials, 22 individual dials, and imagine each one of these dials has a trillion different little tick marks on all of these dials. Scientists say that, it, that for, for life to even come and, and happen in the first place, each one of these 22 dials with the trillion different ticks, they would have to be set to the very exact tick in order for life to even develop and happen. Everything from gravity to the speed of light. Famous atheist Stephen Hawking he said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by just one part in 1,000 million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed on its, in on itself or never developed galaxies. The odds of randomly arriving at the right conditions for life, for, for Earth to survive and thrive, it would be something like a tornado flying through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. That's the odds. Okay, put away your, your telescopes, and I want you to grab your little microscopes now because you're going to find the same mind-boggling complexity on the molecular level. 
This, the same way that the iPhone has an intelligent designer writing its code, so does the world. Richard, R- Richard Dawkins, he admits that the amount of information in one cell, this is an amoeba, in one single cell, it has as much information in its DNA as a thousand cyclopedias. Francis Collins, you guys ever heard of him? He's the head of the Human Genome Project. Let me just help you. He's smarter than you, okay? The head of the Human Genome Project. He also is a Christian. And he said this. He said that a cosmic accident producing something as remarkable and elegant as a DNA strand would be like thinking an explosion in an ink factory could produce the collected works of Shakespeare. Francis Collins calls DNA the beautiful language of God. The human eye, fascinating. You guys know this, the human eye, it is way more complex than any camera on your phone. Your eye, before all of these upgrades, it had automatic focusing. Your eye was the first one to have automatic light sensors, a built-in stabilizer. And all of all, what an eye can do is it can simultaneously transmit all of the information and messages that you're receiving. It can transmit it to your brain at roughly 10 million bits per second. That's as fast as an Ethernet connection. Come on, guy. How did the eye come about? How did our genetic code come about? How did this perfectly fine-tuned universe come about? Hebrews 3, 4 says, every house is built by someone. I love this. The builder of all things is God. Again, these are common sense arguments. Here's the next one. This is the moral argument, or as I like to call it, the that's not fair fingerprint. If you have children, you know this argument fairly well, don't you? I don't know what it is about kids, but kids, they just come out of the womb saying, that's not fair. It's so interesting. Like, where'd they get it from? It's not like me and my wife are walking around the house being like, that's not fair. Like, they had to get it from somewhere. The other day, I gave my, my five-year-old, Brixton, I gave him five Skittles, and I accidentally, I swear, I accidentally gave my second four Skittles. You would think that I just lit him on fire. I mean, total meltdown. This is not fair. I hate the world. Dad, you're the worst. Right? It's like, whoa. Now, why did they react like that? Because they got little justice meters in their heart. Now, granted, they're tainted, but they're still these little justice meters. You and I, we're no different. You and I, we, we have that little voice in our head that's saying this is right and this is wrong. Now, even if we disagree what should go in the right category and if we disagree what should go in the, the wrong category, we, 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 still, we still have those categories. Every culture on earth has them. And the reason, as Paul says in Romans 2, he says, it's because the law is written on our hearts. See, even in places without the Bible, we have seen, I mean, even in the most remote tribes who have been cut off from the rest of civilization, there's still a moral code that's similar to everyone else. Have you realized that? Like, it's, it's like stealing, murder, molesting a child. Like, no one in here would say those things aren't wrong. No, we'd say those things are evil. And we've seen across all cultures, there's this code that unites us. Now, you may think, okay, well, Jordan, those are just instincts. Those are evolutionary instincts. They're there to help us progress and survive. It's evolution. Now, the, the problem with that, though, is that you don't see that in the animal kingdom, do you? When a lion attacks a zebra, we don't call that murder 
we call that Animal Planet, right? We, we call that a good safari. Like we, we, but here's the thing. At some point, it tips over. If after church, I go into the parking lot and I look at someone like a lion looks at a zebra, and I run over to them, and I grab them by the neck with my teeth, and I throw them down on the ground, and I eat them, you wouldn't go, well, he was hungry. Uh, right? Like he was after church. It's lunchtime. No, you would go, he has done something decisively wrong. And there it is. The minute you call something decisively wrong, you're appealing to morality. You're appealing to morals. Here's the second thing is what C.S. Lewis, he calls the ought. Have you ever heard of this? The ought. Brilliant. He said this was actually the argument that led C.S. Lewis to a belief in God. He said, supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger. Think about it. Someone's crying. They're like, help me, help me. You would probably feel two desires. One would be a desire to help. That's your herd instinct. Oh, I want to help this person. The other desire you'd feel is a desire to stay out of danger. This is self-preservation. But then he says this, you will find in your heart a third impulse, which tells you that you ought to feel the impulse, that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Where does this impulse come from? C.S. Lewis worked it out. He said, it comes from morality, from this law that's written on our hearts. And he said, if there is a moral law, that just means there has to be a moral lawgiver. And it led him on this incredible journey, and he became this incredible theologian because of that. All right, last evidence for today. It's called the desire fingerprint. The desire fingerprint. Man, I've heard some people before who just, you know what? I just, they, they, their problem with religion is they think religion was just made up by man, and maybe this is you. You just think this is all made up by man because people just, they need, they need help coping with death. They need help coping with that fact that there's no afterlife, and so they've created this religion to kind of help them with that. S Steve Jobs, he was a self-proclaimed Buddhist. You guys know this about Steve Jobs? For months, though, before his death, he began questioning the meaning of life and the idea of God. In his biography that written by Walter Isaacson, he records this meeting he actually had with, with Jobs. And he says, this is what Jobs said. Sometimes I believe in God. Sometimes I don't. I think it's a 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it a lot more. Interesting. He said, I find in myself believing it a bit more. And he said, maybe it's because I, I want to believe in an afterlife, that when you die, it just doesn't all disappear, that the wisdom you've accumulated, somehow maybe it just lives on. But he says, yeah, but then there's sometimes, I think at the end of the day, life's just kind of like an on and off switch. Click, and you're gone. And he said, that's why I don't like putting on and off switches on Apple devices. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you hear in Steve Jobs this cry, like, I, I hope there's more. I hope there's more. The, the reason Jobs felt like that and the reason that you may have felt like that is because God says in, in Ecclesiastes, he said he has set eternity in the human heart. He has stamped your very soul with the idea that you were made for more, that you were made to be forever. It's stamped on you. And ever since your soul left God, it has been, whether you re realize it or not, it's been on this mission looking, looking to get back to God. C.S. Lewis, again, he, he talks about how this desire, and really he talks about how any desire in the world, there's a satisfaction that can meet that desire. Have you ever thought about that? 
A baby feels hungry. Well, there's food that can meet that desire. A duck wants to swim. There's water. Men feel sexual desire. There's such a thing as sex. And then C.S. Lewis says something so interesting. He says, if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There is a desire for all this to be true, isn't there? All right, let's just pretend really quick. Let's just pretend that we don't believe in God. Let's pretend that the, the world did, in fact, it just came from nothingness, that there's no value, there's no meaning, like this is all just, this is all there is. Okay, if you subscribe to that belief, this is what the atheist Richard Dawkins says that you would have to believe. You'd have to believe that on one planet, Earth, and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, Molecules that would normally make nothing more than compli complicated than a chunk of rock gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they're capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, searing, seeing, hearing, capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. Now, I know Richard Dawkins, he's using some humor here, but at the end of the day, if you don't believe in God, this is what you subscribe to. This, this is the default position. And I want to say this really humbly. But if you do believe this, okay, if you don't believe that there is a God, you don't believe in all this, isn't there just like a little part of you that wishes it were true? Like, isn't there just a small part of you that hopes that this isn't all there is? Like, don't, don't you hope that the love you have for your kids and your wife, it's more than just chemical reactions? Don't you hope that things aren't as random as out of, and out of control as, as things may seem, but just maybe there's some purpose to all this? Like, come on, you know that you don't live up to the moral code that's in your heart. You know it. Don't you wish if there was some way that you could be forgiven, that this guilt that you feel so heavy, that it could be removed from you? If there is a God, wouldn't it be awesome if this God was loving and kind and forgiving? And wouldn't it be awesome if this God said, you, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to get to know me. I want to do this life together. I sent my son to die for you. Wouldn't that be, listen, hypothetical, but wouldn't it be awesome? Or come on, at, at the very least, don't you hope that this just isn't the end? That when you die, maybe there's something more? Wouldn't you love to spend eternity untainted by evil with those you love? Wouldn't you want that? Now, I know for some of you, you're like, yeah, I would, but it's just a stretch. Okay, number one, I don't think it's more of a stretch than complicated chunks of rock coming together. Number two, follow the evidence wherever it leads. I think the best evidence for the origin and the meaning and the destiny of mankind, I think it points to this, an eternal, detailed, moral, loving creator. And Paul thinks so as well. Paul thinks it has been made so obvious. In fact, look how Paul finishes his thought with verse 20. Right? Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. They got no excuse for not knowing God. Yeah, no excuse. Whether you believe in this or not, there will be a time, we believe, as Christians, where we will stand before God. And no one in here is going to say, God, I didn't know. 
God, I didn't know you were real. I, di I didn't see your power in the stars. I didn't see your morals written on my heart. I didn't see your relentless pursuit of me. I didn't see it. God's going to go, it was right in front of your face. I was pursuing you. You just weren't looking for me. You didn't want to believe. Listen, belief in God, it is, it's step one of our faith, okay? But I want to be very careful because I know a lot of Christians, and maybe a lot of you may be in this room, and you're like, great, I believe that there is a God. Stop. I'm done. Woohoo! I've done it. Guys, that's step one. Belief in God is step one. Step two is getting to know this creator. Step two, you see, the, the existence of God is supposed to lead to the pursuit of God. That's the whole point of it. God's just not like, hey, I want you to know I exist. God's like, no, I want you to know I exist so that you could pursue me. If there really is a grand designer who made all this, who is he? What's his name? What, what's he like? What doesn't he like? I mean, there's so many questions. Once you, once you get past this hurdle of like, okay, I believe there's a God, let that, let that send your heart on this mission to find out who this God actually is. Let it lead you to your knees like it did C.S. Lewis. Let it lead you to worship. Eight years ago, I was leading the young adult group at my church, and I get this friend request on Facebook from the most a beautiful girl I've ever seen in the world. And I thought, I actually thought it was a fake profile at first. Like I thought my friends literally made a fake profile and they were sending me messages to like catfish me because I have terrible friends who would do something of that nature. And so I, I really, I just was like, oh man, this is fake. It's fake. This girl's fake. It's not real. But then the best thing happened. I go to church that next Sunday. I get on stage and who do I see in the left section of the auditorium was my wife. And I was like, oh my word, she's real. Thank God. This is awesome, right? I was freaking out. I was like, I, was, I couldn't even focus. I didn't know what I was saying. I was just like, don't make it obvious. And I'm just like slowly going to this side of the auditorium. You want to know what I didn't do though? I, after seeing her, I didn't say, all right, whew, well, glad to know she's real. I'll never talk to her again. And then I just moved on with my life. No, knowing she was real, I was like, oh my word, I'm, I got to go get to know her. I got to go after her heart. In fact, I had a meeting with some other pastors after that service. And I was like, guys, I got to go. I can't go to the meeting. I made a beeline right for her. I chased her heart. And then I married her. Step one. Step one is believing in God. Step two, it's going after his heart. You guys know what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? It means that you are a man or a woman who goes after who God is. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all your mind. God, I want to know you. I want to pursue you. So, Jordan, how do I do that? You, you follow the evidence. You follow the evidence wherever it leads. And here's the thing. I think if you're honest, I think if you're really honest with following the evidence, I think the evidence, it will lead you to Christ every single time. I think it will lead you to Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see, and get this, he made the things that we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created 
Through him and for him, he existed before anything else, and he holds all things together. Is any, excite anybody anywhere? Come on, give it up. Christ is also the head of the church. This church, which is his body, which is his bride, who he cares about, who he pursues, who he says, I will do whatever I can to make this holy. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. God made you. God loves you. God wants you. God's not done with you. God's not finished with you. He has plans, and he's got purposes for your life that you wouldn't believe. Worship him. Follow him. Let this knowledge that he exists bring you to your knees and worship him.